This is Living Real Radio. Real issues in real time with your host, John N. Gotti, Greg Walton, Robert Fiducia, and Julianne Staley. Living Real Radio is sponsored by Closets by Design. Imagine your home totally organized by Closets by Design. Call them today to schedule your appointment at 615-261-8700. That's 615-261-8700. Good morning and welcome to Living Real Radio with your hosts, John Angotti, Greg Walton, and myself, Julianne Staley. And today our guest is Father Andrew Forsyth, who is the chaplain at Pope John Paul II High School and the associate pastor up at St. John Vianney in Gallatin. Welcome, Father. Thank you and good morning. Good morning. What's that, Julianne? I said, how's your quarantine going? Oh, my quarantine's going great. Uh, I'm uh, in a regular kind of normal work schedule because uh, I teach at the high school. And so uh, my classes are happening and I've turned into a televangelist uh, in which all my masses are being recorded. And we have five seminarians living here uh, in our convent. And so uh, they have a pretty regular routine. And so on top of all of those things, we have kind of normal parish life happening with people needing to talk to Father or um, grass needing to be mowed. Or I mean, I don't mow the grass, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> so uh, the the life goes on. So we're quarantined. I think it's probably more like we're we're uh, extremely socially distant more than uh, quarantined would be. That would be the better way to put it. Wow, sounds like St. John's is booming. How um how have your classes been? With the kids? Classes have been pretty good. Uh, you know, you have to remember that most of the children don't have a lot of responsibilities, so there's not a lot of cause for them to get out of, out of the house except to be in the yard. And so I, I would wager that that's probably caused some stress upon them, not being able to see their friends. Uh, though, uh, you know, I, I was cracking the joke the other day. I was like, you know, this is the particular generation who's always on their phones and now we're always on our phones, and now they're all upset. So what happened? <laughs> so that is so true. We, we spend this whole time, like, telling them, put your cell phones away, put your cell phones away. Now we have to be on all this stuff. And, uh, and they're, they're having a tough time with it, which, you know, really speaks to the truth of the matter that you're not made to be staring at a screen all your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I noticed uh, with the Zoom that I've had for youth group, we haven't had as many kids because they're tired of looking at the screen. And I, I'm like over Zoom meetings. I don't know about you guys, but there was an article that I was reading the other day saying how it just dra- drains you mentally and emotionally because you're trying to keep up with so many people's reactions over a screen that's not real time. So like you're trying to process that as you're in a meeting. Maybe we should have the meetings without the, without the visual because then you can't see what's going on. Or well, maybe that'll mess with our minds more because then we'll be wondering, what were they thinking? <laughs> Stress us out even more. So you won't be able to see me roll my eyes in the meeting. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Kidding. You can't read people's body languages. Well. <laughs> well, if that's the case, Julianne, I wonder if you know there'll be less uh, people on social media and that kind of stuff after this crisis. I wonder, you know, because that seems to be a problem before. You know, there was all this time people spending on computers and screens that maybe it'll be maybe it'll have a reverse effect when it's I don't know you know it's funny about the everybody being on social media I noticed this morning I was at the grocery store and 
there's no rhyme or reason to why things are missing on the shelves, I think, except for the fact of people posting new recipes on social media. You know, so like everybody went through like a baking phase and now like all the pasta was gone today and it's been there every time I've gone to the grocery store except for today. It was completely cleared out. And then sure enough, one of my friends I saw posted some recipe for chicken Parmesan with pasta. So I just wonder if there's, I'm sure there's something trending to figure out why everything's gone at the grocery store on a particular week. I've, I've got some pasta holed up in my cabinet. You know, I'm a pasta holder. <laughs> what can I say? It's really father messing with me. <laughs> Well, isn't it uh so we're recording this on friday it airs on on sunday but today is the feast of saint joseph the worker isn't that a big italian feast day so is it possible that like you know people are cooking pasta you know kind of in uh honor of, a of their italian tradition <laughs> well it's kind of like you can't find corned beef you know close to saint patrick's day or whatever you know what i mean like it disappears <laughs> I, I thought the Italians that, are attributed with the devotion to St. Joseph. So typically that's on his proper feast day, which is March, March 19th. Oh, that's true. Yeah. This one is, this one's kind of a, a recent uh, imposition, but I would, it would seem to follow that if there was an Italian around and there was an opportunity to celebrate St. Joseph, then they would probably be cooking some pasta. So I think you're on to something. <laughs> I think I need to get my sauce out today then. I need to get started. You're going to cook, John? If, John. You know, might as well. I make a good sauce. I did put prego. The trick is put a little teaspoon of sugar, just a little teaspoon of sugar in the sauce. I like how you said, I make my own sauce. Prego. It's <laughs> <Yeah>. prego. Right. <laughs> Well, you're that teaspoon of sugar, so it makes it your own sauce. That's right. You know, that's the little bit of doctrine. Yeah. When I don't make my own sauce, that Rouse homemade is pretty good stuff. Rouse homemade. We just did advertisement. I wonder if they'll, we should do some advertisement for Rouse homemade. Rouse homemade, if you're listening, uh, please uh, make me a pasta sauce guinea pig. I'll try anything you make. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. I was going to say, Father, you like to cook a lot, don't you? Yeah. Uh, it when I've got time, which I've surprisingly been doing a lot of uh, with the quarantine. So there's something that shifted in my normal schedule. Most of the time, uh, you know, like at school, I just eat lunch there at the cafeteria. That's how I get my vegetables. And uh, <laughs> you know, I'm I'm lucky to be able to cook maybe once every two weeks in the rectory at dinner time. So most of the time, it's like grab a sandwich, uh, you know, swing by the restaurant. My pastor likes to dine out. Uh, frequently too so I'm usually dining with him or, or I'm in a lot of people's houses too most of the time so other people are cooking I have one question before we get into your vocation story here so you said the seminarians are living in the convent is that right yeah mm-hmm. so uh, how many how many sisters are in the convent zero oh. zero sisters so in uh, 1950 something the uh, the parish here built a, a school that had Dominican sisters that taught. And so the sisters lived on the top floor and then the middle floor was the school and the bottom floor was the cafeteria. Uh, of course, the sisters moved off and uh, uh, times changed. And then they came back for a little while and then they moved off again. So there was a remodel to the convent somewhere around, I guess, the year 2000 or so. And so uh, there are four rooms up there with one common bathroom. There's a chapel up there, a uh, living, uh, living room, and then a dining room and a kitchen. So in order to keep our seminarians safe and in order for them to keep their education at the seminary going, 
because they all went online. Uh, Father Gilstrap, the director of vocations, has put them all there and on this campus for the time being. And Father William Bush is uh, kind of their overseer, formator, as uh, their dean of men is probably the best way to, to say it. That's what we would call them in the seminary. Right. So uh, that's what's happening there in our, it is a convent, but I suppose currently it's a seminary. Yeah, I was going to say it's changed into a seminary. So It also used to, that's what I remember it from, is it was the religious ed building when I was at St. John's, because that's the parish I grew up at. So, and that always looked weird, just how they had the classroom set up, because it was makeshift from when it used to be a convent. So it's funny that it's gone back to its original form, I guess. Yeah. Well, Julianne, uh, you know, Father is, is, is your friend and your guest today. And uh, so why don't you uh, introduce Father and, and we'll get, see where Father's been and, and hear a bit of his story. All right. Well, um, Father's homily actually today, he was talking about St. Joseph the Worker and uh, how he, Father says he um, loves dumb people. And so I guess that's how Father came to know me. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, he was talking <laughs> about St. Joseph and uh, who he is as a person and how he was as Jesus' father. But um, Father um, became a father. However, he grew up Nazarene, right, it's in the Nazarene church. And so he has a pretty fascinating story. And I'm going to turn it over to Father now to kind of explain how he came to be where he is today. So there's a great phrase that all roads lead to Rome. So uh, it was several things for me that brought me into the church, but a lot of it was having questions that I couldn't get answered anywhere else. And it was in Catholicism, I found the answers. So um, it was the music of the church. It was the theology of the church. It was the history of the church. It was the beauty of the church that really all got me. Ultimately it was beauty. Um, and uh, I dare, I, I don't, uh, I don't think I would dare call it a miracle, but it was definitely something that moved in my life that, that made me, you know, kind of cross the Tiber uh, when it happened. And I'll t- tell you about that in a minute. So I went to Trevecca Nazarene University here in Nashville and uh, through some of my classes and courses and then studying music history as a music major, I learned a lot about church history that I just never was exposed to. Also, I had some Latin in high school. I had two courses of it in public high school. So I was exposed to the Christian faith at its founding. uh, And I remember my Latin teacher talking about how she had went to Rome in between my Latin one and Latin two years. And she said, she remembered reading some graffiti that said, pray for Paul or pray for Peter. And it made the faith in its ancient uh, uh, form more real to me that there were, these were actual people and I mean, I didn't doubt that they were actual people. I read the stories my whole life and heard them my whole life. It, but it, it, it was somebody who actually had seen something besides just me reading the book. And so that uh, those were kind of some of the little seeds that got planted along the way, including me sitting in a music history class when um, my music history professor says, you know, the, the Lord gives us power to forgive sins. And I'm like, what? Yeah, it says there in John. And I'm like, Whatever, man, that ain't the Bible. And I look it up, I was like, well, I guess so. Of course, now he would dispute what that means. We would dispute what that means. When we say that the Lord gave us the power to forgive sins, uh, we mean that in an apostolic way, that a priest can give absolution, the bishop can give absolution in the sacrament of reconciliation. And so uh, he would he would, uh, he would, would disagree with me about that one. But the point is, 
because I'd never seen that, and I never, I never even considered that that was something that we should, you know, think that well, maybe, maybe there's something more to this. So these little kind of nuggets along the way through my education that brought that about, and then I wound up on a a choir trip. I was in an acapella ensemble at Trevecca called the Madrigalians. If you've ever been to the Christmas at the Cathedral um, in its first few years, you would have heard the Madrigalians sing. And um, actually, as a matter of fact, the first Catholic church I ever stepped into was at our cathedral because uh, we had a concert there. And so, uh, of course, the beauty of the church really just struck me. And uh, being able to sing there and sing that concert was uh, was a, a great help to opening my mind and heart to God's plan. So fast forward all that, and I get to Rome, and I had basically told one of my professors, look, when I get back from this trip to Europe, I'm really going to check this Catholic thing out. I think there's something to it, um, or I'm, e- I'm either going to do that, or I'm going to get really serious about becoming a minister in the Church of the Nazarene. He's like, well, see you, see you on the other side of the trip. We get to the catacombs of St. Callistus in Rome, which is right there on the Appian Way. It's one of the, I think, four uh, Christian catacombs there in Rome. It's the most popular. And for some reason, there was a retired priest from Philadelphia who was giving the tour. I've been back there since and never saw a priest there doing tours. Maybe the case that they do them, I don't know, but he was. It was the first Catholic priest I'd ever seen, I think. And he gets done with uh, the little tour. And at the end of the tour, he says, let me pray for y'all. And he gets done with the prayer, and he says, I don't want to ask the mother of God that he would bless and keep you all, blah, blah, blah. So, oh, he prayed to Mary. I never heard that one either. And so I mean, I heard about Catholics doing this. And uh, he said, I want to tell you a story about a saint that was martyred just nearby here, like a half block away, where St. Tarsisius uh, was martyred. And St. Tarsisius was taking the Eucharist to those in prison. He was a young man. Uh, he was taking the Eucharist to those who were in, imprisoned, and these young men rolled up on him and said, hey, we want to see the mysteries. Show us the mysteries. And uh, he's like, no, leave me alone or whatever. Anyways, they wound up beating him up, and as his body rolls over, I believe the Eucharist had disappeared. Now, I don't know if he had consumed it or it miraculously disappeared. Who knows? But when the priest got done telling that story, my buddy Chad, who was a Catholic and, and uh, one of my sponsors into the church, um, he said, I don't know about you, Andy, but if that was only bread and wine, if it was just bread and wine, I sure as hell wouldn't die for it. And I said, well, me neither. Good point. And so that really kind of shook me and, and kind of opened me up to what would continue on throughout that trip and all these great churches throughout Europe and all these encounters with beauty uh, that would put me on my couch when I got back home a couple of days after the trip and turning on to the Catholic channel, EWTN. And there was a little old lady, a nun, sitting there talking about how she gave retreats to priests and she said, now, you got to remember, I rely heavily on my intellect. I, I don't really move to things of the heart all that easily. And the idea of, of, of one's will and passions, I don't get too emotional uh, about things. It takes, you know, don't, don't be really excited about too many things. 
I mean, I like the labs. I'm not like I'm, I'm, like I'm a robot or anything, but I, I could use a lot more help in that, in that realm. And uh, anyway, uh, she said, Father, you're not going to find God in all those books and things you read, but on your knees in prayer. And it was like somebody slapped me upside the head with a two by four. And I don't know why, uh, but, but that idea of prayer really just got my heart moved toward what was about to happen next, which is, this is where the kind of the miracle happens. I think almost immediately the programming changed, uh, to Deacon, uh, Oh Jesus. What was his name? Deacon Bill Steltemeyer. Was that his name? Uh, he was from Nashville. Uh, he just died a few years ago. Anyways, uh, I'm sorry if you're out there listening and you know the real name, but I think that's his name. I'm pretty sure it was him. He was reading from John chapter 6. Except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have not life within you. I'm like, what? That ain't in the Bible. That That's a bunch of Catholic nonsense that they wrote in the Bible. Like, give me a Bible. I want to read this for myself. Uh, there was a Bible next to my couch, which wasn't a Catholic Bible. Cracked it open, John 6, and there it is in, in black and white, or it could have been red and white, I don't remember. Except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. You have not life within you. I said, well, if Christ says it, i got to believe it. And so I called the cathedral the next day and said, I'm ready to join RCIA, I believe. The rest Dang. Of wow. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's an amazing story. And uh, um, so you were talking about music, though, too, that was influential. Is there some, is there some song or something that... Uh, we're at a point where we need to take a break. And um, is there a song you have in mind that may have uh, influenced you or feeds you in some way? A song at that, that would have influenced me at that time. Um, you know, I think that we did an O Salutaris piece that I always found to be rather beautiful. So that's one that we used at Adoration. O Salutaris, O uh, singing to the sacred host. And um, we did a more modern range Oh, salutaris hostia, quiceli pondis hostia. Anyways, um, I was singing to the Eucharist when didn't know it. So I guess we can blame Jesus on that one. So that would probably be a good song of influence. Oh, salutaris hostia. All right. So here's Oh, salutaris hostia. You're listening to Living Real on Hippie Radio 94.5, brought to you by Closets by Design.
listening to Living Real Radio on Hippie Radio 94.5. Honey, have you seen my Allen wrench? Mom, where's my baseball glove? Dad, do you know where my ballet shoes are? Has anyone seen my phone charger? I can't find it anywhere. Tired of losing things? Tired of the clutter? Let Closets by Design help you organize your life. Have one of their experts come to your home for a free in-home design consultation. Whether it's a small closet, your office space, or pantry, or even a big garage, Closets by Design can help you make the most from the space you already have. And all units are built in their factory right here in Franklin, Tennessee. Call them today at 615-261-8700. That's 615-261-8700. You'll be amazed at what Closets by Design can do for you and your family. It's the best time of year to organize your entire home. Right now, get 40% off. You heard me right. 40% off their everyday low prices, plus free installation. Call Closets by Design today, 615-261-8700, or visit closetsbydesign.com. Welcome back to Living Real Radio with Julian Staley, Greg Walton. I'm John Ingotti. Robert Fiducia is out doing things today. And today we have Father Forsyth with us who is from here uh, in Nashville Diocese, who is the chaplain at uh, um, John Paul II, and as well as helping out at, uh, is it St. John Vianney? That's correct. Yeah, St. John Vianney. Awesome. And uh, we were talking um, before the break about John 6. And so I, I got a question for Father that I, that I need some help with when I talk to my uh, brothers and sisters who are not of the Catholic faith, who uh, struggle with John 6. And their comments to me are, you can't take that literal uh, because when Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, does he truly mean that he is a vine? And how do we combat that when he says, unless you eat the flesh and drink the blood, you have no life within you? How do we uh, deal with that type of, uh, because as Christians, as we're all as Christians, that we're divided. And how do we bring people to come to see what, what we believe is, is true? It's a great question, and that's where it all hinges, and that's that's the question that uh, we we uh, we get a lot for those who are reading their Greek. If you ever want to read the the scripture in Greek, listen. Here's the Catholic priest telling you to read your Bible. Type in interlinear Greek, and you'll be able to find your Bible in Greek, and it has the translations under. I think it's ScriptureForAll.org is are the guys that have the best one, and then you can also do Hebrew that way too. So, hey, go read your Bible. The, the St. Jerome said that ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. So the question is this. Is Jesus in John chapter 6 speaking literally or metaphorically? Well, we have to look at the words that he employs. So I'm going to bring it up uh, interlinear here so I can just have the, the Greek on hand. But it's, you know, there are times when Jesus speaks metaphorically and he winds up explaining stuff to the, the disciples. They're saying, hey, you know, what do you mean by this? And they'll say, well, I, you know, here's what I meant by this. He's not doing that here. Uh, and so it's a different animal. Like when Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, or the sower went out to sow, or, you know, he gives all these explanations. Well, that's not what's going on here. He doesn't do that at all. As a matter of fact, he makes it pretty clear that he's meaning exactly what he said. And so I want to propose before we get there, though, Something that's important that I think that, that we miss out on if we don't read our scriptures like a good Jewish person would have uh, back in the day. And he said that your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and died. The scripture in the Psalms calls the manna the bread of angels. 
men ate the bread of angels, is what the scripture in the psalm says. If the bread of angels that comes down from heaven is given for you to eat and you die anyway, that's a pretty good bread. I like it. If I offered you a cheeseburger and a loaf of bread from heaven, which would you take? So I would want that angel's bread, but that angel's bread is still going to give me death. So what possibly could be better than a loaf of bread from heaven? But God himself. So just on that little run of logic, there has to be something better than manna here. Because if I'm just eating a cracker at church, that's not as good as angel bread. So God gave us something worse than manna, if that's just a cracker, just wine, just juice. It's a lesser meal. Thanks, Jesus, for the snack. So is he going to give us something better than what he gave? I mean, is Jesus plan B or is he the plan? Is he the afterthought of, of the Jewish history of salvation or is he the culmination, the fulfillment? He says to himself he's, he's the fulfillment. Right? He didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill it. And so if we really believe what he says, then we have to believe that the Eucharist is what it is. Now, let me get into this Greek here. You have trogon, the one chewing, the one masticating. So that word, so this is 654, um, that word is the idea of an animal gnawing or crunching on a bone. So if you were a Jewish person and you were hanging out, um, listening to this guy Jesus talking, if he was speaking in metaphor, um, you know, metaphors speak different ways to different cultures, right? Um, we, we use certain metaphors to say certain things that might be an insult in another culture. In that culture, if they heard, eat my flesh and drink my blood, this is what they would have heard him saying, if, they, if it was a metaphor. That Jesus was telling them to persecute or hate a person. That's what to eat one's flesh meant in that culture. Or that Jesus was telling them to enact revenge, because that's what it means to drink one's blood in that culture. So if it was metaphor, your Jesus wants you to be vengeful, and he wants you to persecute people. That's what a metaphor is. If you use that as metaphor, that's what that language means. So I don't know about you. I don't really, I'm not really comfortable with the Jesus that wants me to persecute and hate people or enact revenge on people. So, you know, it must be literal. He didn't correct them. You know, when they were walking away, he didn't say, wait, guys, I'm just kidding. That's a metaphor. By the way, you should hate people. He didn't say any of that, right? He kept, he kept saying, this, this, is, <laughs> this is what it is. Uh, I, I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If you eat this bread, you will never die, and I will raise you up on the last day. Also, there's a little understanding in the way we uh, see the Gospels coming about and being written down, that this is what we call a criteria of embarrassment. That if, if we were just making this stuff up about Jesus— we wouldn't put anything in the scripture that was embarrassing about him. And it would seem to be kind of embarrassing to have this kind of part where his disciples walk away from him. But they put it in there, so it must have happened. So we're not just, you know, some, not some Catholic author making this stuff back up. Why would we put something in there that would embarrass us about Jesus or embarrass Jesus or make him look less than God? 
unless it actually happened. It's, it's the same thing about why Jesus gets baptized. That's, what, that's another criteria for embarrassment. Like, why is God letting some dude that's like eating locust and honey baptize him? Isn't this supposed to be the other way around? You know, so it must have happened. It must have happened because I, if I was telling, if I was trying to talk you up to somebody, I'm not going to tell your embarrassing stories. It's also interesting too, right? That um, we actually don't have a last supper in John's gospel. What we have in, we have the washing of feet and then we have the bread of life discourse, which and and John is written much later in the first century. He was the longest living of the apostles. Legends has it that probably the only one not to that was not um, martyred, right? Who died a natural death. Um, and so it was written around ninety five. So we have like a a more advanced development of what the Eucharist meant to the Christian community in the Gospel of John. Um, and also this emphasis on Jesus' flesh is also kind of a, a counterswing to the Gnostics who did not, who thought the material world was a bad thing. And so we see this emphasis on matter, on something you can gnaw and chew, and on this thing being the thing that brings you life and it being Jesus, kind of all wrapped up in there. Um, very powerful statement for the time. And insight on on what the the christian community came to understand the eucharist to be after the resurrection now did you struggle with that in in the beginning of your uh, conversion into catholicism no no because um i was kind of i found that communion was something that was very important that there was something going on here and we probably should be doing it more frequently. Initially, I wasn't that way because it seemed like a Catholic thing to me. But when I, when I got to Rebecca, we did celebrate Lord's Supper a lot more frequently than I did growing up in the church. I, you know, the only individual you know church I grew up in. So it was something that was emphasized as something important at the school, and that helped you know kind of bridge those that that issue. That really wasn't a hangup for me. My biggest hangup. For Eucharist was the idea of the closed table that only Catholics could uh, receive, and it, it didn't make sense to me at the time. So, how do you address that issue now? Because that that's you know that's an issue across the board is why not everybody's welcome to the table. Well, for one, not everybody believes the same thing about it. It, it is the bread of unity, right? So um, we believe that it is the one bread and one cup, right? And so there's. There's a unity that's there that is not existent for those who don't believe what Jesus says about it. And, oh, and it's the same way the other way around that if, um, you know, I am at, say, uh, a local insert uh, evangelical uh, church here and, and they do the Lord's Supper, you know, I don't believe what they believe about it. They don't believe what I believe about it. So it's out of respect an ecumenical respect for each other that we don't uh, share in that activity because different things are happening. We believe that a sacrifice is being taken place in which God is uh, through his mercy and grace, taking us back to the, the Christ event, the passion, death and resurre resurrection of Christ. And we receive the living and true God. And uh, you know, that's why it's body and blood together. You separate blood from body. You have death 
um, we believe that uh, we receive the living Christ. Christ is alive. So there's there's so much stuff that we believe that it's it basically that there's too much of a difference for us to be able to uh, share. Now, for instance, like the Orthodox Christians, they have permission to receive uh, the Eucharist at our masses. However, they've been asked to respect the wishes of their own bishops. So from time to time, their own bishops will allow them to receive the Eucharist from us. Now, it's not the other way around for us to receive in the Orthodox Church. But as far as any kind of non-Catholic, non-Orthodox, um, there's different belief about what the Eucharist is and, and who is able to administer it and, and what a priest does. So this is also tied into what the priesthood is as much as it is as to what the Eucharist is. I find, you know, doing weddings and funerals where people aren't Catholic and, you know, we give the disclaimer before communion, you know, that if you're not Catholic, I almost sometimes feel guilty about going to communion because, sorry, folks, y'all can't come, you know, um, Mm -hmm. but, you know. Well, we ask those people, you know, these unfortunate divisions do remain. We ask those people to pray for unity and we can't too. And we, you know, we don't have to go to communion every time um, that we're at the mass. The purpose of mass is to worship God. And then, uh, you know, this kind of an, uh, the, the reception of Holy Communion is, is, is kind of a bonus to that, that, that if we're prepared, and this is the next element to this, is that as a Catholic, you have a moral responsibility to be in a state of grace before you receive the Eucharist. Because the Scripture makes it clear that those who are not prepared, those who are in that state of mortal sin, will be drinking condemnation upon themselves and defiling the Lord's body and blood. So... You know, we're not imposing on our Protestant brothers and sisters any more than we would be a Catholic, imposing upon, opposing this teaching upon a Catholic, is that you have to be in a state of grace. And so um, I don't know if you're in a state of grace, especially, and, and if you're not baptized, um, you aren't. You have original sin. And so now if you're baptized, that's a different animal. Um, and I don't know your soul and I can't judge you, but, you know, it would seem to be the case that somebody who has been baptized at a younger year would probably need to do some reconciliation with God before they were prepared uh, to receive the communion. So just on that kind of soul level, not to mention the, the, what we would call the ecclesial laws that, uh, that are kind of binding this, but also the, you know, the, the moral laws of God that bind us to this. And I'm, I'm, by, by me saying that, I'm not saying that anybody, you know, all Protestants that I know are in sin or anything like that. I'm just saying, we don't know. And so uh, I don't know about you, but I'm a sinner and I need God's grace. And uh, certainly after I was baptized, I needed to get to confession a lot and I still do. So, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of kind of intricacies here that, that those who are exploring the Catholic faith should just uh, allow for time uh, to develop. It, this isn't something that you can just kind of jump into with both feet and be ready to go and dialed up, you know, here's your membership card, we'll sign you off and you're good to go. Uh, being a Catholic takes time and it, it, there's a wisdom there to it. As somebody who wanted to jump in with both feet and get that membership card quick, you know, these things take time, they, but most of all, they take prayer and faith. And, and that faith, that grace that comes through that is from God. And so you know, we're working on his timetables. Awesome. That's a great deal. What, what song do you have? Do you have a song that might go with this, Father? This one's one that's been stuck in my head a lot. This is by the Cranberries, uh, the song Linger. <laughs> I'm wondering. 
Um, I love that song. Every time I hear it, I will turn the radio up to listen to it. There, there are very, very few songs because I'm a cranky critic that I will just sit and listen to again and again and again. And this one is one of them. And there's something in it. I guess it's maybe the sentimentality of the memories in my life that it brings up. Um, I, and I, maybe there's a Eucharistic t- teaching there uh, because that's what anamnesis means. Do this in memory of me, uh, this, to, to be taken back to that particular moment, uh, which is what the Jewish people believe when they are at uh, their Pascha, their Seders, I mean, not, not Pascha, I'm sorry, that's Orthodox. Uh, during Passover, um, that their Passover Seders, they uh, believe that they're being taken back to the first Passover in Egypt. And so uh, that's anamnesis, that's the Greek word, to be taken back to that. So um, when I hear that song, it has an anamnetic property to it. And it's just a well-written song. Uh, I love the Cranberries. Uh, it's sad what happened uh, in Dolores' passing. And it really kind of just struck me when, uh, when I learned that she had died. Usually celebrity deaths don't do that to me. That one did. And part of it was because it was like part of my childhood had gone away. And, uh, you know, you can't get that moment back. Though with the Eucharist, you can. All right. So here is Linger, the Cranberries on Living Real. You're listening to Hippie Radio 94.5. Our show is brought to you by Closets by Design. You're listening to Living Real Radio on Hippie Radio 94.5. All right, welcome back to Living Real Radio. I'm Greg Walton with my co-host, Julian Staley, John Ngati, and we're talking to to uh, Father Forsyth, uh, who is the chaplain at JP2 High School, as well as the associate pastor, John Vianney, in Gallatin. And uh, so uh, we just finished up talking about the exposition in the Gospel of John with uh, that Jesus gives us on, on the Eucharist, as well as why we have a closed table at, at church. But now we're, you know, we're broadcasting, a, well, we're recording this on May 1st. And so May is a special month uh, for Catholics. It's the month of Mary. And so uh, let's get into uh, Mary. We got some May crownings happening, probably at uh, some of our online streaming masses <laughs> this Sunday, I'm sure. I, uh, I was part. I was part of one of those just today. It was in the month of May when Mary lads were playing. La 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 la. You know where that's <laughs> from? Well, oh, I mean, I'm sure it's like an old madrigal, but it's kind of made famous in an Andy Griffith episode when I believe Barney Fife was singing it. It was in the month of May. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that should, that, maybe that should be the outro song. Mm-hmm. So what about Mary? I don't know. You guys got to sh- shoot your arrows at me. Let me let me hear what you have to say. Well, Mary's did, awesome. She's a blessed mother. She bore Jesus to the world. How, how do we explain to you know since I've been on this kick about how to talk to our Protestant brothers? How do we how do we express you know our belief in Mary? How do we show others because you know our listening audience is wide and and you never know who's driving down the road listening that uh, may go you people worship Mary you know and change the channel but how yeah do we keep people. Uh, you know, to know truly what we believe. What would, how would you express that? I just had somebody jump on our, you know, and review St. Philip on Facebook with a bunch of scripture from Revelation equating our, you know, uh, saying that the church is idolatrous and, uh, you know, that um, uh, 
and that, you know, our Marian devotion and our saints are a bad thing. So how do we bust that open for people? Well, there's all kinds of layers in there, but if you want to talk specifically about Mary, we have to read our Bibles like a good Jewish person reads or reads the Bibles. And so uh, you got to look there at Luke and what happens there is that Mary is being uh, shown to be the Ark of the New Covenant. And of course, that word Testament means that New Testament means New Covenant. What is the New Covenant, by the way? That's the Eucharist. Um, well, so you might as well uh, just say that second half of your Bible, you could, you could just call it Eucharist. Right? This is the book about the Eucharist because the Eucharist is Christ. But I digress, or perhaps that's the better way to go. <laughs> but, um, you know, you have Mary being talked to by this angel, visited by this angel. This angel says, Hail thou full of grace, hail Mary full of grace. Um, you know, and the, the, the Greek word again is uh, as if she had already been given this grace from the beginning. And she says, well, how can this be since I've never had relations with a man? He says, well, this, the shadow of the most, uh, the, the spirit of the most high will overshadow you. Well, that word is the same word that's being used for Shekinah in Hebrew, uh, the, the presence of God dwelling over the tabernacle in the desert. Well, what's in that tabernacle? The Ark of the Covenant. And what's in that Ark of the Covenant? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> in there is uh, the Ten Commandments, the, the budding staff of Aaron, and the manna, what came down from heaven, the, the bread of angels, okay? The Ten Commandments are the Word of God and the Law of God. The staff of Aaron that's budding is a sign of his high priestly status. Aaron was the high priest of the, of the people of Israel. And the manna is the bread from heaven. Inside of this tabernacle, it was to be constructed from acacia wood, which is believed to be incorruptible. And I don't know how if you've ever seen acacia wood. I've actually got some yellow acacia wood here at my house. It is rock hard, and it will dull a carving tool quicker than anything. It's like you're carving into concrete. It is rock-solid, rock-hard wood because it's got so much silica in it. So the ark was supposed to be made of silica wood, and it was supposed to be gilded with purest gold. So they made a gold box and put the wood box inside of it, and they put another gold box inside of the wood box, and they capped it all off with gold. So it was gilded from within. And without pure gold, perfect, pure, precious gold, incorruptible wood, law inside, bread inside, high priest staff inside. Ta-da, here's Jesus. Jesus is the law of God. He is the, the word of God made flesh. He is the eternal high priest, and he is the bread come down from heaven. And he shows up in his mother's womb. Our Blessed Virgin Mary, our Blessed Mother, who was incorruptible because she was without, born without original sin. She was conceived without original sin and who uh, was gilded of purest gold and pure. We have that scripture where the, the, they were, the ark was crossing in the water and the man touched it. He stopped to touch it. He wasn't supposed to touch it. What happened? He died. So if, if, this is, uh, if the ark of the covenant was holy like that, how much more is the Ark of the True and New Covenant mm. holy? The womb that bore God Himself. 
The Ten Commandments is a, is a symbol of who God is. The high priest staff is a symbol of God's authority. The bread of angels is something that God sends, but it, it's not God himself. So if that Ark of the Covenant was that holy, how much more is the Ark of the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary? How much, how much more holy is her? Which is why when the Ark of the Covenant comes back into Jerusalem, comes to Jerusalem, David, King David, when they found the Ark in the plains, uh, wait a minute, that's a different story. When David has the Ark brought to Jerusalem, he says, and why should the Ark of, of my Lord come to me? And it said he danced in front of the ark, naked, by the way, <laughs> and leaping for joy. And so uh, you see this when Mary, after you know the, the incarnation happens, she goes to the home of Elizabeth. And she stays in the hill country of Judea, which is also an ark reference when the ark was in the, in the hill country of Judea. And, it, and, and as she's coming, Elizabeth says the following. And why should the mother of my Lord come to me? For upon your greeting, the infant in my womb leapt for joy. Now, is that just some strange coincidence? Or is what the Catholic Church is telling you about who Mary is correct? Is it a strange coincidence that here is the ark coming into the city, and David said, why should the ark of my Lord come into my presence? And he dances. And he, and he leaps for joy. And then Mary shows up and Elizabeth says almost the exact same thing. And the infant, John the Baptist, leaps in her womb. There's also the, um, I think about the fact that sin, no matter, we have different understandings of, of how it works in our different Christian traditions, but I think we would all agree that it's a generational thing that we inherit from the first parents. Um, how is it that if Christ was born of Mary, that he would be free of that generational deal, unless in some way that was broken, that God intervened? And how did God intervene? Um, well, I think you could actually question. make the case. I think I think that God could have incarnate inside. It wasn't, you know, that's not impossible for God to become incarnate inside of, of, the, of the womb of a sinner. But I think it's more important for us to, to understand why Mary is the new Eve here. Is that Jesus is the integral man. You know, when Adam and Eve sin, everything disintegrates, right? Everything just kind of blows up. Think of like the Big Bang, if you will. Um, things fall apart. It wasn't that way in the beginning. Adam was integral. He had everything he needed. He had ordered passions. He had all the preternatural gifts. He had immortality, et cetera, et cetera. And he blew that up. Well, Eve did the same thing. And so in Christ, you have an integral male who has, you know, uh, primordial integrity. And necessarily, it would make sense that Mary is the female who has this integrity. That she has this uh, integration, and so she has these these gifts uh, in the same way that Adam and Eve had them before the fall, but not just the same way, but in a better way, because Christ actually elevates us to even higher status, mm. which is why he's the plan and not plan B, right? He's not the, the fixer. Um, he's not the fixer plan. He's the only plan there ever was. What Adam and Eve saw 
what the Hebrew children saw, saw in that ark. Those are all shadows and images of the true sign that would come to us through Jesus Christ and his blessed mother. And so now, Mary needs Jesus. We never say that Mary didn't need Jesus. It's just that he gave her the same grace he gave us through uh, the wiping away of original sin. He preserved her from that from her very conception, whereas he preserves us through that from that through our baptism. Right? We're we're rescued from that, and she's preserved from it. So there's there's a little bit of a distinction there. Um, she is she is that woman who says yes where the other woman said no. And we find our redemption in the garden in Gethsemane. And it was in a garden that we had lost it. And if you see traditional depictions of Mary and the Annunciation, Gabriel talking to her, almost always she's in a garden or there's flowers or a tree nearby. Hmm. Which is fitting the for the month of, of the May. Whole, yeah, and the May mm-hmm. crownings and all that stuff. Yeah. Well, One uh, of the things I love to contemplate, too, is like uh, tradition holds that woman was the first to say no. Um, but the beauty is, is God's love and justice is that woman is the first to be redeemed. You know, I, I just think there's just something powerful with that. Great words. Um, Father, um, as we wrap up today, uh, just really great having you on the show. It's a lot of great insight. Uh, we'd love to have you back. Um, to really c- to continue to have these discussions over air- open airwaves, uh, you know, where um, you never know who's listening, who needs to hear the word and who's struggling with their faith. And, you know, your topic about Jesus wasn't plan B. Uh, that, that's, that's great. You know, some people think, oh, we sinned, so God had to send Jesus. It's like he was coming anyway, you know, he was coming anyway. And uh, so for all those that are out there that are uh, struggling uh, with the, the virus and the things that we continue to deal with, um, we, we hope to be back in, in our churches here in weeks. You we don't know exactly what's happening, but we just know that you're all held in prayer and we care for each and every one of you. And for all those out there, first responders, we thank you for all of your service. Julianne, thank you. Keep up with the youth. Greg, a lot of stuff happened at St. Philip. They can see everything that's going on on our website, stphilip.com. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's 8 a.m. when we're broadcasting here. So uh, we are going to be doing kind of a special blessing of homes uh, after our masses today. So if you catch our 10 a.m. stream or our 1 p.m. in Spanish, um, Father Bala is going to be leading us in a prayer to bless our homes in the midst of uh, the COVID crisis that we're in right now. Father, do you have a closing mm-hmm. song that we can use to go out with? Yeah, here's a great song by uh, an artist by the name of Guy Clark. It's called My Favorite Picture of You. So we're back into the idea of, of sentiment. He wrote this about a song. If you if you ever look it up, he's holding a Polaroid. That's the actual picture he wrote the song about. Uh, it's about his wife. And I think it's, uh, you know, there's uh, kind of a, a whimsical cuteness to it, but it's got great lyrics and it brings back great memories and, and kind of gets me back to that kind of idea of anamnesis that uh, it's kind of getting back to this there's this great line and there's just a polaroid shot a moment in time uh you know these these uh, it's been captured um but it's it's bringing back a reality that goes beyond the picture awesome mm. yeah so my favorite picture of you by guy clark All right. Well, thank you all for listening to Living Real Radio, brought to you by Closets by Design. Go out and smile at somebody, make somebody stay. God bless us. My favorite picture of you.
You've been listening to Living Real Radio, real issues in real time, with your host, John Angotti, Greg Walton, Robert Fiducia, and Julianne Staley. Be sure to tune in every week at 8 a.m. to Living Real Radio. Living Real Radio is sponsored by Closets by Design. Imagine your home totally organized by Closets by Design. Call them today to schedule your appointment at 615-261-8700. That's 615-261-8700.